0: This podcast is produced by Arts Council England. For more content like this, visit artscouncil.org.uk or soundcloud.com forward slash england. Morning, everyone. Do you know, I never before had trouble standing on a stage. But after last night's unbelievably brilliant and inspiring lecture, I think I may have to go into therapy I'm twitching. Anyway, um, it's lovely to see everybody. Um, thank you for coming. Welcome to Thessaloniki. Uh, the credit rating is tottering. Life is serious. And of course, we are all thinking about jobs, revenue generation, economic growth. And inevitably, now more than ever, the public debate about the arts is focused on the bottom line. We talk endlessly about art in terms of regeneration, creative economy, return on investment. And fair enough, the instrumental value of the arts to wealth, to mental and physical health, to education, to social coherence, is real and enormously, enormously important. But today is about something else. Today is about the extraordinary and essential role which artists play in our society, their genius, their needs their contribution to what matters in all our lives. I've never met an artist who set out to work with their pen or their brush or their piano with the sole aim of contributing to the creative economy. Artists work to explore, to crash through our received ideas, to show us personal and unique perspectives to express anger and love and fear and awe. Great art isn't about economics, It's about the ambiguity and restraint of Gerhard Richter's September, the lyrical insight of James McCarthy's 17 Days, the breath-stopping horror of Jacobi's Lear, the exploration of personal landscapes of Akram Khan's Desh, the relentless looking and looking of David Hockney or Lucian Freud. These works, these artists, some exalted, others setting out to develop their voices, tell us something about ourselves, about how we live, and about what it is to be alive at this time. And the tougher the economic climate, the more fearsome the threats to our ordered and tolerant society, the more important they are, and the more art doesn't just reflect society, but shape it too. So what's the Arts Council doing to support artists in this extraordinary enterprise? Our role is just to create the conditions for the most talented artists to emerge and reach their potential. A job which starts in the earliest years and it continues through life. Artists need to be able to take risks, to innovate and to change direction, to continually redefine what great art can be. And that means they not only need enough to eat and pay the rent, but also time and space for research and development access to workspaces, opportunities to showcase critical and supportive feedback, help in realising an ambitious idea, and the chance to collaborate both at home and abroad. We at the Arts Council want to be an organisation that offers intelligent support and that backs artists at the times in their career when they need it most. An organisation that encourages and recognises the changing way in which artists are working, where lines between traditional art forms are blurring and new technologies are being incorporated to create innovative work. An organisation that artists feel they can come to as partners and colleagues. The Arts Council's relationship with individual artists is of course often carried on through the companies or institutions they work in, but we are acutely conscious of how important it is that individual artists see us as their place Quite as much as arts institutions do. Which is one of the reasons why, despite the spending review cuts, we have freed up 12 million a year for grants for the arts. Our open application fund that invests in around 2,000 groundbreaking projects every year. So, despite hard things, the Arts Council remains, remains very much open to investing in new ideas and creative talent. But helping talent to thrive isn't just about investing in individual artists, it's also about managing the legions of creative individuals that help great art to happen. That's why we also want to back the programmers, creative producers, curators, editors and animateurs whose artistry brings work to the public in fresh and engaging ways. So while artists themselves will always be at the heart of our approach, we will support the networks and the infrastructure that discover and develop talent. And as we have to reduce our own expert staff, we're going to rely even more on those networks to supplement the work we can tackle directly. We need better networks between our funded organisations too, something we're going to be working on in the coming months. And incidentally, the Olympics have been a great boost here, We need to be sure we don't waste that new spirit of cooperation which they've engendered. 2012, despite everything, does really feel like a year of the most tremendous opportunity for artists across the country. Later this year, of course, will be the greatest showcase of them all, the London Olympics. Our creative minds are already putting themselves at the heart of the Olympic celebrations, with outstanding projects taking shape all over the country from Antony McCall's column in Merseyside to the Thames being transformed into a river of music. The Cultural Olympiad is going to show the world that there is no country that can compete with the restless innovation of British artists. And in the run-up to the Olympics comes the project I feel most excited about because I believe it could be a real watershed in the way that culture and the arts develop in the rest of our lifetimes. Alan mentioned the space the new digital arts media service we're launching alongside the the BBC in May. This is a real step into the unknown for the Arts Council and for artists. Of course, it's a huge risk, but fortune favours the brave, and without courage, there is no creativity. So we're plunging in, and so are artists and arts organisations all over the country. We've had an extraordinary response from people applying to have their work commissioned for this service, The work of shaping and commissioning is going at breakneck speed but sadly not quite fast enough for me to tell you today who is going to be there on day one. You'll have to wait till next week when we'll be announcing the 60 or 70 projects that will be appearing on the space as we look to showcase the best of this country's art and culture in new ways. The space will of course open up completely new ways of distributing artists' work digitally And today I'm delighted to announce another, very different initiative, which we hope will also help artists to broaden their physical and cultural horizons. In what is a new chapter in the relationship between the Arts Council and the British Council, we're launching the Artists' International Development Fund, which is a three-quarters of a million pound fund to support English artists to travel, explore and collaborate internationally, developing markets and audiences overseas for their work. The fund will open for applications next month, and it responds to the evident and increasing insistence by artists that they need access to their peers, to audiences, and to influences from other places and other cultures. And the fund will, I hope, be a valuable help to artists to build on domestic success at crucial stages of their career. Life at the Arts Council, in day-to-day contact with artists, is an extraordinary experience. Mostly, it's just a joy and a privilege, night after night, day after day, to go out and see, hear, or read work of such exceptional range and richness that it truly does feel like a golden age, if one that feels slightly on the edge of the unknown. Now and then, artists being artists, there is the odd outbreak of behaviour which wouldn't be welcome at a Vicarage Tea Party, but the overwhelming experience is of people who are risking their all in front of audiences every time they leave home and who do it for tiny rewards and for the sheer love of their art. For the Arts Council, creative talent is where it all begins and ends. Supporting artists so you can thrive is central to everything we do. We are just a means to an end and though we work hard to be the most effective means we can possibly be, we never forget which way round it works. Thank you. And now, it's my very pleasant job to introduce our next speaker, Ed Vesey, Minister for Culture, Communications and the Creative Industries. He's such an energetic minister that I think he's probably known personally to almost everybody in this room, but still... Um, I think of him as an arts minister who first and foremost visibly adores his job and who has finally got the Department of Education to think creatively about culture and who has broken new ground in government support for new areas of the creative industries, in particular things like gaming and video games. A really exciting way to do that very difficult job. Because, of course, as he occasionally grumbles to me, the Arts Council gets all the fun and he gets all the problems. But I think we are exceptionally fortunate to have uh, a minister with so much commitment to the job he's doing. So with great pleasure, um, I would like you to welcome to uh, 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 his return visit to the State of the Arts uh, Conference, our National Valentine, Ed Vasey.
1: Thank you very much Liz, I'm speechless. Uh, There's definitely an outbreak of love and a Valentine's theme at today's conference, although I did hear uh, Liz's definition of an artist as somebody who risks all in front of an audience every time they leave home, so I suppose uh, for the next 10 minutes I will be an artist for the purposes of this uh, speech. Um, So today is Valentine's Day and Valentine's Day is obviously going to be the theme of almost every speech that's made from this podium, so I want to rise to the challenge of Valentine's Day and talk about the state of our relationship. I want to start with a declaration of love. I want to, echoing really what Liz said in her introduction, I love being the Minister of Culture uh, and I love representing this sector. It's a huge privilege, it's a pleasure to represent such an important part of our national life. And of course, in a time of economic austerity, and uncertainty, again, I suspect a theme that we'll hear a lot of today. I think that the arts are more important than ever before. But I also think that more and more people now recognise that you, the people in this room, are brilliant at what you do. And what you do is important. And I do come from the school of thought that believes that the arts are their own justification, valuable in and of themselves. I don't think the arts do have to find other arguments to support the importance of what you do every day. But in any event, if you do, I think those arguments have been made and made very forcefully and effectively, because nobody, I think, today would doubt the contribution that the arts make to our economy, to our communities, to our schools, to our well-being. And I think today we see it more than ever before. (coughs) But I think wherever you look at the moment, British creativity is having a massive impact here and abroad, whether it's the Leonardo, the Freud, the Hockneys drawing massive crowds, Hearst coming at Tate Modern, War Horse, Jerusalem, One Man, Two Governors, British artists like Adele dominating the charts, British films topping the box office, British fashion centre stage. And around the country, new and ambitious museums and galleries opening from Turner in Margate to Hepworth in Wakefield, from M Shed in Bristol to First Sight in Colchester not even contemporary to the recently refurbished Holborn Museum in Bath. So I think these are brilliant and exciting times for the arts, but as I said, I wanted today to talk about our relationship. And I think with any relationship, it's important to know where we're going. So today is an opportunity for me to set out our approach to culture. First of all, I want to make it absolutely clear that we believe that government should provide the core funding for the arts. I know that many relationships do founder over money, and ours may be no different. But I'm pleased at a time of economic austerity that we've managed to limit the reduction in arts funding via the Arts Council to less than 5% in real terms. And the Arts Council will now receive something like £2.3 billion over the next four years. And secondly... I want to make it clear that we support the mixed economy model for funding the arts, something that is almost unique to this country and I think very important. It means that the arts can support themselves through a combination of government funding, philanthropy and fundraising, and earned income. As part of this support, as part of this ecology, we've looked at ways to increase philanthropy and to help with fundraising. And I want to make it clear that is not to replace government funding, but to help the arts. So despite the tough economic times, we've introduced an inheritance tax break for people who want to leave money to the arts in their will. We've introduced a tax break for people who want to give art to museums while they're still alive. We've increased the threshold for acceptance in lieu by 10 million. And we've established with the Arts Council a match funding and capacity building scheme to help the arts raise more money ...from the private sector, individuals and charitable foundations. The Catalyst Fund, which is worth about £100 ...will announce its first awards in May. And we've also created separate trusts for our national museums... ...to ensure that they can spend the money they raise... ...without it being counted as public spending. Third, let me make clear as well... ...that we support absolutely the arm's-length principle. We want arts and artists to be as independent of government as possible... It doesn't mean the government shouldn't have an arts policy or that it shouldn't direct money towards programs that it believes will be beneficial to the arts, whether it be philanthropy or education. But it does mean that the Arts Council should be free to support the arts organisations it feels are worthy of support without interference from politicians. So far, so evolutionary. I think that the fourth principle that I've tried to pursue as Arts Minister is to break down silos. The silos that exist within the arts and the silos that exist between the arts and other creative industries. I find it frustrating that many pioneering arts organisations don't have the opportunity to share their expertise with others. It frustrates me that the arts, which are the bedrock of our creative industries, are not seen as an essential contributor to the debate about the future of those creative industries. And it concerns me that the arts may not be benefiting from the revolution in technology that we're seeing in the 21st century. So everywhere, all across the piece, we're looking at collaboration. So we've established the Creative Industries Council. That brings together BIS and DCMS, and it brings together the Creative Industries and the Public Service Broadcasters, but it also brings the Arts Council to the table to take part in that uh, conversation and work on a common agenda as an equal partner with all those organisations. We've merged the Museums, Libraries and Archives Council with the Arts Council, bringing together formally for the first time libraries, regional museums and cultural organisations. We've established a Creative Industries Funders Forum, again bringing together the Arts Council with Nesta, the Technology Strategy Board, which is not a name that sings out as an organisation that would have an interest in the arts, but it does, the Arts and Humanities Research Council, Creative England, the British Film Institute, Skillset, to look at how, working together, we can more effectively support the arts. And, of course, the Arts Council and the Arts Humanities Research Council and Nesta have come together to create the Digital R&D Fund to help the arts and heritage benefit from developments in technology. And as Alan and Liz have already talked about, the incredibly exciting collaboration between the Arts Council uh, and the BBC, which, by the way, I'm not taking credit for for that, just merely uh, an enthusiastic bystander, collaborating on the space, which some have described as the most significant cultural intervention in this country since the Arts Council itself was formed. I want to do more, and I think my challenge for the Arts Council is that it can be much clearer about the development work that it does and look at how it could do it more effectively. It needs to be an organisation that shares ideas between the arts. It needs to work as much with those it doesn't fund as with those it does It needs to work with both not-for-profits and with business and learn from both. I'm also, as many of you will know, very excited about what technology can do for the arts. I think it provides an unprecedented opportunity to reach out to new audiences. I don't regard technology in sort of binary terms, that somehow the future is going to be completely different from the past. I actually think that's nonsense. We're all going to still want to go to see... Live theatre, music, dance, or visit galleries and museums. But I do passionately believe that technology can enhance that experience by deepening it and enriching it, or by simply engaging with people who may not know what is happening very near to where they are. And in the 21st century, as Patrick Hussey from Arts and Business uh, wrote in his uh, wonderful uh, blog on the uh, Guardian, uh, Algorithms can be almost as important to the arts as audiences because algorithms help you engage with new audiences. And also, I think the thing about technology is that it's about informality, it's about flattening hierarchies and removing barriers. And I think that's something that the arts in all their forms should embrace. So I think the arts should be seen as leaders in innovation in technology as much as any other part of our national life. Fundamentally, what we want to achieve is the long-overdue recognition that the arts sit at the centre of the changes of of what we're experiencing, not uh, at the periphery. Uh, And in this kind of world, the importance of the arts is growing, not diminishing. And I'm delighted that others are getting the message I saw a speech by David Willits, our science minister, last month who said instead of just thinking about STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths, we should add the arts so it becomes STEAM. I was delighted when I commissioned a report on skills in the video games industry that one of the most important uh, recommendations from two people working in that industry was about the importance of the arts to their industry. And finally, I want to ensure that as many people as possible experience the arts, starting in our schools. We've already ensured that we've maintained free entry to our national museums, and that perhaps could be a principle of our cultural strategy all on its own. But we need to reach out in other ways. Following Darren Henley's music review, we launched the first ever national plan for music education, I think that is a massive achievement. It's an example of close collaboration between the DCMS and the Department for Education. And again, it's heartening, I think, if you're looking for ways to justify the arts, that the Department for Education in the National Music Plan explicitly recognises the importance of music and music education in underpinning a rigorous academic education. And the plan also puts the Arts Council and therefore arts organisations at the centre of the strategy. It's the Arts Council that will be assessing the bids for funding in the next few months. And again, we're looking to break down barriers to see schools and local authority music services working with leading local, regional and national music organisations to deliver a rich, varied and full curriculum for school children. Next week, we're going to publish Darren Henley's review of cultural education. And we want to build on the national plan for music with the first ever national plan for cultural education, covering as much ground as possible from archaeology to architecture and the built environment, archives, craft, dance design, digital arts, drama and theatre, film and cinemas, galleries, heritage, libraries, literature, live performance, museums, poetry and the visual arts. We want to work with arts organisations, large and small, and encourage them to play their part in providing children with varied cultural experience. The review process has already had an impact, with the main lottery funders for arts, heritage and film already look at how they can work more closely together on the ways that they support cultural education. Amazingly, they'd never formally collaborated before. And finally, we can't ensure that as many people experience the arts unless the arts are in many places as possible. So we need to do much more to support artists and arts organisations outside London. Catalyst Fund will make an important contribution, as will the continuing and expanded grants for the arts programme. But I'm really delighted by the Arts Council's decision to establish the £37 million Creative People and Places Fund. Over the next three years, 15 areas of the country with a low level of arts engagement will receive grants of between half a million and three million pounds to establish innovative and fresh arts projects to help build a vibrant cultural infrastructure That's exactly the kind of innovation we need. So I think that's where we are in terms of our cultural strategy. Funding secured, the mixed economy model supported, a focus on philanthropy with tax breaks and matched funding, the arm's length principle sitting at the centre, a huge focus on collaboration, the use of technology, working with the creative industries, uh, and a push towards a cultural education national plan and as liz mentioned 2012 our olympic year is the year when britain's creativity takes center stage as it so deserves to when people come to britain for the games i hope they'll see a confident vibrant country regaining its strength not at the expense of world class culture and the arts but precisely because of it for 6 weeks we're going to be at the center of global attention the london 2012 festival and here I pay tribute to Ruth Mackenzie's vision and determination. We'll showcase the best that we have to offer in the arts and creative industries. West End Live will feature the cast of every single West End musical. Gustavo Dudomo will perform with the Children of Sterling, and "Land of Giants," the largest outdoor arts event ever seen in Northern Ireland, will be, will be performed on the Titanic Slipway in Belfast. And that's not to mention the likes of the U.K. premier of Winter Marcellus's "Swing Symphony conducted by Sir Simon Rattle, or an epic new choral work from composer Jonathan Harvey to be performed by the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra and a major exhibition of contemporary West African art in Manchester. I hope you'll agree with me that there is a huge amount to look forward to. And I'm sorry that a speech like this can never really avoid jargon or the mundane prose of policy. But we should never forget... at the heart of everything we do is the artist, support for artists, and freedom for artists. As John F. Kennedy so memorably said when speaking about the poet Robert Frost, the artist is the last champion of the individual mind and sensibility against an intrusive society and an officious state. The artist's fidelity strengthens the fibre of our national life. I see little of more importance to the future of our country and our civilisation than full recognition of the place of the artist. And I say amen to that. Thank you very much.
0: This podcast is produced by Arts Council England. For more content like this, visit artscouncil.org.uk or
1: soundcloud.com forward slash Arts Council England.